Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This week, we welcome on C.W. Cannon, who is a novelist, contributor to The Lens, and educator. Take a listen. I first started writing about New Orleans at a cafe in Munich. My reading material was often Thomas Mann, including his great novella, Death in Venice. In that masterpiece, an aging and revered German author gets depressed one day in his native Munich and wanders south to Venice in search of a romantic past and the sources of his poetic inspiration. Munich is also where I began to ponder the difference between my hometown, New Orleans, and Chicago, where I had been living the past few years. Mann's mythical journey from Munich to Venice struck me as comparable to America's mythical journey from Chicago to New Orleans, especially in the world of jazz. So I decided to reimagine the descent of Mann's character into repressed desire followed by death in an American context on the Chicago-New Orleans axis. Like Mann's Aschenbach, my Maz Mazuski is accomplished, ethical, serious, and a bit arrogant until he sinks into New Orleans, cracks under the repressed contradictions of desire and resentment, and falls apart. Of course, because my retelling takes place in the U.S., the aesthetic and personal issues facing my protagonist are laden with racial baggage. So Maz Mazuski's sudden dive into the sources of his art in the shape of his desire becomes a trek into his racial unconscious, where monsters lurk. It shouldn't be a spoiler to note that the outcome for Maz, as with Gustav von Aschenbach, is tragic. Chapter 1. Detour Ahead Peter Maz Mazuski was once dubbed the Benny Goodman of his generation. In one of the Playboy jazz polls, probably 62, 63, but the moniker turned him against the clarinet. He drifted over to alto sax, where he found a new home, new fans, new sound. He got nominated for a Grammy, and after his 1972 fusion soft funk breakout, Preaching the Blues, people started calling him Reverend Maz. One October afternoon in 1982, he woke up in a funk. Not the good kind, a bad blue funk, without groove. He knew before he got out of bed that he had to quit his sweet home, Chicago, and he knew before he left the house that it would have to be New Orleans. Follow the funk to the crotch and find out. That was his plan. He made a few phone calls, put off his producer, said you can't rush art. Then he hit the pavement with a light bag and a not-too-special Selmer. Union Station was step one, the first crossroads, where he'd pick a gate that led to another one and on and on till he found his baby. He'd dug Union Station deeply, always had, decked out like it knew how monumental it was, flinging passengers to the far corners like lightning bolts or dust. But only about 30 souls is what Maz counted in the vestibule. The big black pews looked so empty. What happened to the crowds? History. Maz used to make it a point to show up early just to love the bustle, all the bodies and suits and hats and faces, standing, sitting, strutting, passed out, tearing out, running. He wanted to hear Strayhorn's A-Train or Train's Blue One, a fighting blue. But all that came to him was detour ahead, dogged by that itch again, which seemed to just be saying lay down and die. No way. If the blues don't leave me, I'll rock on away from there. He hopped aboard the Illinois Central. Well, now it was Amtrak, the city of New Orleans. He wondered if it was the only line still surviving named after a city. 
It was a no-brainer that it would be the grimiest train in the Amtrak inventory, a cinch, since it had to traverse Mississippi and grind to a halt in the big greasy. His coach car was a hand-me-down for sure, with its faded walls from the glory days out in the sunny blue west, dulled Formica Thunderbirds in red and blue on a golden-yellow background. Inappropriate attire, embarrassing. Maybe for what they did out west, these birds got banished to the south, to America's own little hell. Or was it America's secret playground, an all-too-earthly paradise? But the decor didn't matter. It was more the people, the train-goers, that Maz was into. He could afford a berth, but he always rode coach. To see the people, the people who rode the train, getting on, getting off, the little things they said, the way they said them, the looks on their faces, different threads, hairdos, different colors. His favorite poet said, I'm a colossus, I contain multitudes, something like that. And that was the way Maz went about things when he got down. It was about seeing America, feeling it, the people, joining the throng. He wanted to figure them all out, even though he knew you never could, maybe love them. But what what made Maz different from the others, as far as he knew, was that he didn't know where to get off, hadn't decided yet. He booked passage to the end of the line, but didn't think he'd go all the way down. New Orleans was just too much. He just wanted to relax and soak up some country Americans. The plan was to jump off in Mississippi somewhere, smell out some country blues, maybe Memphis. But Chai was still very much around, still chugging on by the whole hour since boarding. From brick warehouse to brick bungalow to brick warehouse again, repeat, repeat. But finally they hit the amber waves, the endless horizon of cultivated field that never let up for the 300 miles of Illinois. The crush of the city gone, he could finally sleep. Soundly, his car swayed like a crib. He woke up only when the gray dawn happened around Memphis. He pried his peepers open and shut them and opened them again. He knew it was Memphis, definitely city brick, again, and enough of it to be a city. But why did this southern brick look different than Chicago's? His eyes closed again and his dreams chewed over strange theories on the brick and other issues. Something about flesh boiled in a big pot out on the grass going into the southern brick and making it more malleable. But then his lids flapped up again and the dream was gone and there was the live brick again. Still Memphis. Still the same two brick corners framing the same unvehicled road under the train on the same old trestle. Same bolted steel cross bream from dreams and dreams ago. But the bridge was as good as any to be stuck on. The road, a random American road. Not bad. Could be chai. Drawn to smaller scale, of course. And more bruised, broken, more beaten by foliage. Chicago had blight, but this wasn't blight. This was a lackadaisical attitude toward upkeep. The tracks had debris thrown on them. An old mattress, a tire and no one bothered to tidy their workspace. Lazy turkey-neck land, so quick to discard something if it requires the least effort. The South, he hated it. What was he doing here? This Southern indolence thing had a vicious streak to it. It was disrespecting of other folks' labor to let perfectly sound structures go to hell. To request that maybe the living should get up and work would be a glove-throwable offense. Predictably, the train also refused to work. It was some other train's job to move the customers down the track. Maz fumed until he saw something move. 
Not the train, though. Some living thing down in the junk on the unused, one hoped, tracks. It was a hand reaching out of a crate. It retreated. It reappeared. A black hand, palm down on the rail bed gravel. It was somebody's home out there on the train tracks. A Byzantine row and the rough shape of a crescent of cardboard boxes, some wooden ones, plywood, blankets, sheeted plastic, vernacular palace, overstuffed garbage bags lying around like sacks of tribute. The hand had grown into a torso on elbows and knees emerging from the enclosure. It stood. A man. He was wrapped in two, maybe three bathrobes in clashing colors and patterns. He was black. An old, matted gray beard with weeds, grass in it. The rest of the face was unseen under an ultra-wide straw brim, like a sombrero. When he stooped to dig around in a garbage bag, Maz saw also a red bandana peeking out from under the hat and back. The rail bed satrap rose again with an old coffee can and a wire coat hanger. He turned to face Maz's coach and raised his head. The face was wide and dark, framed by grizzled gray fuzz. The mouth spread slowly into a warm smile. At Maz? Could he see him? The man raised up an arm and waved the coat hanger. At Maz? An invitation? Maz scanned the faces he could see in the coach car. They all slept. He looked out again and saw the old chief was beating out a rhythm on the coffee can, holding up his head and pointing his eyes the same way the train was pointing, intoning something. Maz couldn't hear it. The train lurched into gear, labored forward, and the weird messenger turned and looked full at where he must have known Maz to be. The train didn't get a whole lot farther before winding down again. This time Maz jumped up and patted his pockets and ran a hand through his hair and said, Excuse me, to nobody in particular. Um, this is my stop. I'm getting off here. A few eyes opened and closed again and some bodies shifted around in their chairs, but all in all Maz was ignored. The train was still stationary, though, so Maz grabbed his bag from up top and his alto from under the seat and beat it for the exit. But he was stopped by a porter, a middle-aged brown man with a bureaucratic paunch, indignation planted all over his mug. He said, Excuse me, with finality. Maz said it, too, and added, But this is my stop. I need to get off here. We done left the station. But it's right out there. What? Memphis. Maz said, and pointed at the window. The porter laughed with too much glee. That's Clarksdale. We done left Memphis hour ago. Maz was puzzled. Clarksdale? I didn't even know this train stopped at Clarksdale. Well, no, the porter admitted. Not usually. We had to take a detour. Tallahatchie Bridge got flooded out. Maz hadn't seen any rain. Gotta wait for Yazoo. The porter escorted Maz back to his place. Then he glimmed Maz's reservation stub and his eyelids tightened into a righteous squint, the kind that goes with Shaw in the comic books. He chuckled. Well, you bound for New Orleans. You got a ways to go yet. I know. I just did that. Did what? Nothing. You got family on board? Now Maz felt dipped in shame, but didn't know why he should. Yeah, yeah, he muttered and took his seat. The porter let him alone. Maz knew he didn't really look old enough for senile. He had his hair still. It was all white, but had been from way back. He silvered early. He was trim, fit. He'd never been not trim, in fact, in his whole life. No matter how much he ate or drank, 
He never could add much flesh to his bony frame. He preferred to think of himself as lithe as opposed to skinny. But he wasn't putting the energy into dud selection that he once did. He most of the time wore exactly what he wore now, jeans and a dark sweatshirt. He blamed society. If nobody else went to the trouble anymore of suiting up for a train trip, he wasn't going to hassle with it either. He sat in his assigned seat feeling peeved, not wanting to look at anyone, eyes trained on the outside, the flip side of the scratched plexiglass. At least they were moving again. He felt like crying. It happened all the time lately. Tears backing up, trying to bust out, but he never let them. That'd be like giving up. Because he couldn't think up a legitimate reason why he should. He didn't do anything, and nobody did anything to him, to merit a weepy fit. Too many people let their emotions lead them around on a chain. It wasn't that they were weak, but these overhormoned cases treated the blind, dumb wellings of the psyche as some kind of external force over which they had no control. Maz treated his rainy moods like spoiled children. They needed to be dealt with firmly, or else they'd take over and run your whole life into a big, sobbing mess. If you did that, you were half a foot away from going junky and doming in an alley. It might be painful, but please, be the master of your own house. People made the same mistake in art and music, too. Just shouted out their spleens or their balls or some other fatty tissue. All that pop psychobabble about repression was just an excuse to never grow up. A few pages later, New Orleans approached. Maz felt it slouch toward the speeding train. The air seemed to get thicker and to give off an ammoniac stink. The sky was ashtray gray. The egrets dotted along the spindly cypresses of the spillway looked like moths under a lantern glass. But the greasy heat of the lantern's fire wasn't the sun or its reflection in the still water. It came from the petrochem towers in the middle distance, flames like dirty blonde hair snapping in the big one, the big storm, the one that was always coming. In between the train and the fall refineries was a waste of grasses and unmoving water and an occasional tree. Used to be more. Long-legged, broad-winged birds either stood still as tombstones or stroked themselves suddenly into the air. Maz caught some glimpses, too, of the actual mud that made it all possible, a bank here and there. He thought he also saw scratchings in the mud, tracks, the matchstick literature of small birds or large bugs. There was no question in Maz's mind. This was definitely where the first fish walked ashore. And there, out in the middle of it, Maz saw a house. The waste was inhabited. But what nightmares must haunt the nights of this sole inhabitant? to live out here alone, naked, in the face of whatever force would craft such a place. Too creepy for Maz. Any place a mat was no good for seemed to him a good place to steer clear of. Maz was closer to the map than he thought, though. One short bridge brought him back down to peopled earth, took him over the millennia from wriggling mud to shabby suburb, and all of a sudden he could feel the pressing population like warm and boozy breath on his neck. Yet in the visual, the ordinary prevailed. Highways, malls, cars, billboards, not even a palm tree. Maz read the highway exit signs from his train window. Williams, Veterans, Causeway, of course, airport. Not much magic there. The train slowed to a crawl when it hit Orleans Parish, as if saying, look, you wanted to come here, look. 
Unlike Mississippi, New Orleans looked more beat up than he'd ever seen it. Charred frames of houses, fronts of houses with no backs, people lounging on brick steps that led to nowhere, so-called streets with holes and gashes in them, invalid cars unable to drive on four flat tires, windows all smashed out. Half and fully naked children cavorted in the unsound waters and the ditches lining every thoroughfare. The housing projects went on for blocks, with caved-in roofs, broken windows, too poor even for graffiti. The projects in Chicago resembled prisons, but this was worse. Here they were cruelly designed to look like the big houses on rich plantations or like great universities, with their smudged and chipped porches and galleries and quads. Kids bouncing around on muddy mattresses and everywhere, puddles and sinkholes and marshy grassy lots toothed with broken glass. The water was winning and the garbage. Maz disembarked and he felt, who doesn't, that fleeting shudder, that young lover's shy tremble stepping into the New Orleans air for the first time all over again after such a long absence. Fly me to the moon. Maz felt a jump in his blood, a kick, a new thrill, stepping out to some foreign shore where the most delicious elixirs could be obtained. Yet everything looked so shabby, worn down in the need of paint, shoring up. Even the palmetto shading the bums on the lawn looked tired. A red cap directed him to a cab stand where a car was already waiting. The driver had a white bandlon zip-up polo shirt and a white mesh cap on his bald black head. He was 50-ish and had a comfortable gut, what Maz's old Chicago pals used to call an alderman, and what the Mississippi folks simply called looking prosperous. The cabbie greeted Maz warmly, smiled big, took Maz's bag and sacks and stowed them in the trunk, asked where he was from and how was the weather up there. When he got behind the wheel, he craned his neck around and said, Well, I know where you want to go, chuckling low like on an inside joke. You'll be going to the French quarters, am I right? Maz said, well, actually, no, I'll be staying uptown at the old orphanage inn. He started thumbing through his wallet for an address. On magazine, uh, just a minute. That's okay, I gotcha. The driver started up the motor. Nice place, I know that place. Real nice place, it is. He kept looking at Maz, in his eyes almost, through the rearview mirror. Here's the address. I know where you're going. Maz settled back and enjoyed the ride. Let's get lost. It was a nice old car, large, even for a cab, bigger than a Caprice, opera window, had to be a caddy. The brown, mildly red leather was worn and comfortably cracked, a nice easy chair. Maz chilled and let the scenery float by. Some sun had broken through the cloud banks, which had started rolling along, and his driver knew the scenic route, took Maz down some oak-lined avenue. The branches reached over from either side of the street and touched each other, a giant drive through arbor. They turned onto a side street and floated through a cloud of gold pollen, spring for the live oaks, autumn for everyone else. Set back from the trees, but not by far, were the lovely houses, resting high on their elevated piers, dressed for a ball, frilly fascia and brackets, tall windows shuttered in purple, pink, azure, mango a gingerbread village for hip elves. Such care for frivolity, as if naked function would be dispiriting. The big-framed wagon rocked like a boat, dipping and rising over the uneven streets. The driver murmured gently about his 
daughter who currently lived in Chicago. Yeah, she's day up there. Nice girl, too. Maz didn't hear much of the specifics. He just heard the lulling lilt of the voice. Hugging and a-kissing. That's what I've been missing. You never know how nice it seems when you wait down south and... But then he noticed the street sign. They'd just crossed barracks. Maz never remembered barracks being uptown. The driver was still talking, looking at him through the rearview mirror more than he looked at the road, then turning away when Maz caught his eye. You like girls, I get you girls. I know some nice ones. Um, pardon me, but are we uptown? I don't remember it being so far from the station. The driver was quiet. The folds in the back of his neck betrayed nothing. Maz wondered if he'd heard the question. I wanted to go uptown to the garden district, the old orphanage. I... The back of the driver's head twitched, convulsed. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me. What are you trying to say? Uh, just that. What, you think I don't know how to drive? You're driving just fine. I'm just curious about the route. Isn't this a detour? A what? A detour? Wait a minute. Maz paused and planned. The situation had already gotten way out of hand, and he had been so comfortable in such a good space. Why all this sudden conflict? I was just curious to know why we were driving through this neighborhood. Oh, the driver groaned like Maz had said exactly the wrong thing. The neighborhood. And then he spat out parodies of Maz's pronunciations. The neighborhood. The neighborhood. Maz was dumbstruck. He was perched on the edge of the seat, but he just wanted to lean back again and forget the whole thing. The sullen cabbie continued his onslaught. What you? You think I'm going to rob you or something? This struck Maz suddenly as a real possibility. The driver had already slowed down. Now he glared at Maz through the rear view. Maz backpedaled warily, tried to explain that of course he had no intention of offending, etc., but again he got cut off. Ain't that the bitch? White man come down here, get my cab, think because I'm a black man I got to be some robber. That was too much. The race card. Here, Maz was trying not to hurt people's feelings when the real issue was why did he have to put up with this shit that he obviously did nothing to provoke. He was ready to match belligerence with belligerence. He looked for the registration tag, licenses, numbers on the dash and saw that there were none, not even a radio. The car had jerked to a complete stop. Well, you can get the hell out of my cab. He was shouting now, and the rearview mirror no longer intimate enough. He turned around to glower at Maz directly. Maz didn't like what he saw in the man's eyes. Intimations of disproportionate revenge, bloodbath, but also a twinkle like the whole thing might be a prank. Maz held up his hands and said, Okay, okay. The car was pulled halfway onto the sidewalk. Maz stepped out onto a brick banquet that sloped and shouldered like a feeding snake. The car sped off. His Saxon bag were still in the trunk. It was not a cab. That was author C.W. Cannon reading from his latest novel, Sleepy Time Down South. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.